continue to be extremely challenging times. I think my brain is somewhat numb to COVID at this point. We define it as heart rate over the systolic blood pressure. Could a tool that rapidly assesses the severity of vasodilatation actually influence therapeutic decisions? Okay, so I think that makes sense. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. Mike Winters here from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So happy that you are joining us for this podcast. Before going any further, as always, let me introduce my stellar co-host here, Dr. Peter W., Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and Dr. John Greenwood. Gentlemen, these continue to be extremely challenging times. How does this recording find you, Peter? Doing well from a COVID sense, doing much better in the hospital, fewer than 25 patients total in the hospital for COVID. ED action is picking up, but just a sad state of affairs for the country and social injustice. That's what's predominating my world. Absolutely. And how about you, Rob, in California? I'd say about the same. We have settled into a groove in terms of COVID cases. We're steady without very large surges. I think everybody overall is feeling a little more comfortable in terms of our management of the cases that we're seeing. But as Peter mentioned, this new tragic event or series of events has rocked our community very hard. So it's been difficult in that capacity. And John, how are things north of here in Baltimore and Philadelphia? Well, at least I can say for Philadelphia, we're still in a smolder of COVID, seeing a relatively equal number of hospital admissions and discharges in the city. So we're slowly improving, but certainly not out of the woods just yet. And yeah, just unfortunately have to brush up on management of patients exposed to tear gas and a number of other things that I haven't had to really do before in my short career, but definitely a sad and concerning time. And here in Baltimore, similar to you, John, in terms of COVID, we have about 250 patients across our system still as COVID positive. We have about 80 or so here at the medical center. About 50 of those are vented and we have about 19 ECMO cases. So much of that is from transfers from our surrounding community and other academic sites. Still a fair amount, it sounds like, in comparison to Louisiana and California where Peter and Rob are. But it does look like our percentage of positive cases is starting to decline, as well as the number of patients hospitalized overall across the state. In terms of the social injustice, Baltimore has had relatively peaceful protests in contrast to other cities in the country, but certainly very, very challenging and tumultuous times. Well, with the COVID discussion that we just had, and Rob, I would agree that many of us have kind of settled into routine with caring for COVID patients. We've had a few recent COVID posts with respect to various components of patient care. So we're actually going to take a little bit of a break from COVID and get back to some other critical care topics. John, you sent us an article, very, very interesting article as a topic for this discussion. So I'm going to turn things over to you. What do you have for us this month? So yeah, so I found this article really interesting, and it was published in Annals of Intensive Care. It's an open access article. It was just published last month by Drs. Espina Tescon, as well as 
Drs. Tabul and Glenn Hernandez down in South America, who have a really interesting insight as well as a lot of really in-depth thought about sepsis and identification of patients who are potentially really sick who come into our emergency departments and our ICUs. And the title of this article is The Diastolic Shock Index and Clinical Outcomes in Patients with Septic Shock. And again, that's in Annals of Intensive Care. It is open access. So if you search that article online, you should be able to read it along with the outline that we'll provide here on the CCPM website. So just to give a little bit of background, I think the identification of shock often includes abnormal hemodynamics. I think we can all agree that that's one of the first things we look for when walking into a patient's room. And it's also associated with impairments in tissue perfusion. And subsequently cellular hypoxia. So walk into the room, take a look at the monitor, see patients tachycardic, hypotensive. We feel their hands and feet and find that they're cool. That would be a very concerning presentation for a patient with circulatory shock and in the setting of an infection, septic shock. So there's a close relationship between blood pressure and cardiac output or tissue blood flow, especially early on in patients' critical illness. Now, traditional clinical judgments about shock include changes in MAP or systolic blood pressure, but the clinical interpretations often more nuanced, as we all have found over the course of our practice, than an isolated or an individual number. So shock indices have been proposed to incorporate the blood pressure and heart rate to determine the patient's compensatory response to their critical illness. But each of them have limitations. So this past month, the diastolic shock index was proposed as a tool to be used as an interventional trigger, potentially, for vasopressors in septic shock. So I thought maybe what we could do is start with the original shock index, which is the systolic shock index, and interpreting the blood pressure during circulatory shock. So maybe, Peter, walk us through the original shock index, maybe what it is and how it's been used over the past 10 to 15 years. No, absolutely. That's a great intro for this. And so when we talk about the traditional shock index, historically, we define it as heart rate over the systolic blood pressure, right? And never really should, in adults, your heart rate be higher than your systolic blood pressure. Should it be a marker of illness? And I think intuitively, we all know that. So a shock index greater than 0.8 is associated with a 95% sensitivity of predicting shock. It's also good at post-intubation hypotension and the need for massive transfusion in trauma. And this has been well-published in emergency medicine literature. And so a shock index greater than 1.2 after fluid resuscitation is associated with increased use of vasopressors during the first 24 hours of a resuscitation. Alterations in the pulse pressure could really mirror the underlying mechanism of acute circulatory failure. And then from a systolic blood pressure standpoint, it's particularly important in hypovolemic or hemorrhagic shock. It's also critical in cardiogenic shock as well. In very early stages, the systolic blood pressure will fall while the diastolic arterial blood pressure tends to remain the same. We tend to maintain that because the diastolic blood pressure is the greater link to perfusion pressures. And then left ventricular stroke volume decreases cause the pulse pressure to narrow and heart rate will subsequently rise or increase to maintain the patient's cardiac output. 
So this is why the original shock index focuses on systolic blood pressure and has been so helpful for predicting the severity of traumatic illness and peri-intubation risk for our patients. Okay, so I think that makes sense intuitively as well as with your explanation. Thanks. I think that was a perfect kind of walkthrough of systolic blood pressure in the traditional shock index. So if I understand this correctly, as our volume status acutely falls, our left ventricle's performance goes down, which creates basically a lower systolic blood pressure and our heart rate comes up to compensate. Perfect. I think that makes perfect sense. But I guess with sepsis, right? When we find patients come in in septic shock, I think all of us probably would say that we notice that there's a different change in blood pressure. So, Mike, maybe walk us through why the systolic shock index may not be as helpful in presentation of septic shock. Absolutely. So, in terms of healthy patients, recall that the diastolic blood pressure is determined by vascular tone and remains relatively constant from the proximal to distal peripheral blood vessel. Now, in sepsis, hypotension is multifactorial. It's the result of vasodilatation, relative hypovolemia. Yes, there is some absolute hypovolemic component as a result of capillary leak, but relative hypovolemia, myocardial dysfunction, along with alterations in blood flow and distribution. Now, in terms of vascular smooth muscle, in sepsis, this fails to constrict to maintain systemic vascular resistance. And as a result, as you mentioned, John, cardiac output increases, but often cannot produce enough to adequately perfuse tissues. In terms of septic shock, it's believed that diastolic arterial blood pressure better reflects vasodilatation more so than systolic blood pressure or mean arterial pressure. So in other words, it's critical to consider the severity of the patient's diastolic hypotension as this may actually be a better reflection of the loss of patient's vascular tone in sepsis. And there is some evidence to support that. In the mid-2000s in critical care, a study looked at diastolic blood pressure and a value less than 40 classified patients as potentially having life-threatening hypotension. In terms of another study a little bit later in the mid-2000s, also in critical care, those investigators used a diastolic blood pressure of less than 40 millimeters of mercury as a vasopressor trigger for early norepi administration with respect to increasing cardiac output. So that begs the question, could a tool that rapidly assesses the severity of vasodilatation actually influence therapeutic decisions such as when to initiate vasopressors in order to restore adequate tissue perfusion and perhaps reduce the amount of volume that we're administering to patients with sepsis. So I think that sets up this particular study that we're going to go through. And in essence, the authors hypothesized that looking at an early diastolic shock index could promptly identify patients with respect to sepsis and trigger very early norepi administration, as well as identify patients at higher risk for an adverse outcome. Awesome, Mike. I think that was perfect. I guess my takeaway here from your review is that diastolic blood pressure, again, is super important and it reflects vascular tone well. So Rob, walk us through this study, in particular, the population, what they looked at, and what they found. Yeah, John. So the background, as you described before, is that 
loss of vascular tone is a key pathophysiological feature of septic shock. And the combination of gradual diastolic hypotension and tachycardia reflected in another index, the diastolic shock index, could reflect a more serious vasodilatory conditions and be a better predictor of outcomes. So their basic objective in this study was to evaluate the relationships between heart rate to diastolic arterial pressure ratios. In other words, the diastolic shock index that we'll define in a second and describe the relationship between that index and clinical outcomes during the early phases of septic shock. So the population was 761 patients with sepsis requiring vasopressor support in 29 South American hospitals. 424 patients were in this trial were included from the Andromeda shock trial. And then they had another 337 patients from other work to make up the population of 761 patients. And the dates of these enrollment of these patients were from 2015 to 2018. In terms of their other methods, sepsis was defined according to sepsis 2 and sepsis 3 criteria with a change in those criteria occurring during the enrollment period when the sepsis criteria were redefined. They excluded patients with advanced liver failure, chronic AFib, patients who had a pacemaker, and DNR patients. And those exclusions are logical. Patients with liver failure have abnormal vascular tone that would affect their diastolic pressure. Patients in AFib and patients with a pacemaker would have significant alterations, may have abnormalities in terms of their heart rate, which is a main component of the diastolic shock index. And so how did they define diastolic shock index? They define it as heart rate over diastolic pressure, basically. And they measured this index immediately before the start of vasopressors during the Andromeda shock trial, immediately after randomization. And then they continue to calculate this diastolic shock index at several points in time at two hours, four hours, and eight hours after the initiation of norepinephrine. And of note, most of these blood pressure measurements were non-invasive. They were by blood pressure cuff instead of an A-line. So in terms of their results, they found basically the risk of death progressively increased with gradual increments of the diastolic shock index. So increase in diastolic shock index was a very good marker of mortality. And this performed better than other traditional type of measurements of mortality, including the systolic shock index, lactate levels, and other indices. They also noted that very early after the start of norepinephrine, if norepinephrine was started within the first hour of fluid resuscitation, this was related to lower mortality in the high diastolic shock index groups. Then they asked, is there a particular number, a threshold of diastolic shock index at which you need to start worrying about patients? And the answer basically was a diastolic shock index of greater than two on presentation was common in survivors whereas greater than 2.5 
was common in non-survivors. So the threshold is probably somewhere around 2.5. Another marker of poor outcomes is when the diastolic shock index failed to improve between the start of pressors and subsequent measurements at two, four, and eight hours. So again, they found that diastolic shock index was a very good sort of monitoring tool for outcomes in septic patients. And they found these particular thresholds of around 2.5 to indicate poorer outcomes. Rob, that was an awesome summary. And as the audience, as you go through the article, it can get a little tricky going through it. So Rob, you did an excellent job sort of breaking it down to the key points and key findings. So Peter, what were your takeaways from this diastolic shock index article? Well, we see really four important findings from the article. The first is that a progressively higher DSI, right, that value before or at the start of vasopressors are associated with an increased risk of death for patients with septic shock. And so the diastolic shock index, if it's higher before we initiate levofed, this is associated with an increased risk of death for patients with septic shock. I don't think that that's a tremendous aha moment, but I think it is notable, right? And the other three kind of follow along with that. So the second one is an isolated or low diastolic blood pressure, or for that matter, a terribly high heart rate value, they do not clearly identify those patients at greatest risk. So an isolated snapshot piece doesn't really define our patients who's sicker. And I think that we know that those who manage ill patients over time know that what we're really looking for are trends to predict. So an isolated number of a low diastolic blood pressure or particularly high heart rate really doesn't give us much power to predict things. Number three, non-survivors either receive or require more vasopressors and more fluids than survivors. Again, experientially, I think that we know this. As patients deteriorate, we're ramping up with more vasopressors, higher and higher dosages, looking for a response. And failing to get that response, we question ourselves again on what the fluid status is of these patients, and we'll chase that with serial fluid boluses oftentimes. So that's not a shock to us either. What we see, though, is that pre-vasopressor diastolic shock index showed a similar performance to SOFA score and initial lactate levels to predict mortality, while mean arterial pressure and systolic shock index did not. So as effective, if you will, as SOFA in combination with lactate. And we think that the diastolic shock index depicted a similar area under the curve and receiver operating curve than SOFA score and initial lactate, but could add some practical and valuable information about how to intervene the initial hemodynamic condition in sepsis. Maybe helpful for us along that line. It's a rapid thing to achieve even before you get your lactate back. And so the diastolic shock index should not be interpreted as yet another, quote-unquote, index of death or the harbinger of death. Instead, I think higher diastolic shock index value at presentation of severe cases of sepsis could identify patients who might benefit from 
early institution of vasopressors. And I think those are the hallmarks, and that's probably the strongest thing to lean towards, is that if you had this DSI, that should trigger you to maybe institute vasopressors a little bit earlier than you may have otherwise, understanding the importance of diastolic blood pressure to overall perfusion pressures. Awesome, Peter. Thanks so much for going through that. And I think we're all kind of waiting on the randomized trial through the pedal network of early vasopressors and sepsis, but certainly this could be a potential bedside trigger for early vasopressors. How about Robin, Mike? Is there anything else that you took away from this article or maybe even just clinical triggers that you use to define when to start early vasopressors in patients with septic shock when you're at the bedside? I'll go first. I really like this study. I like it because it is a simple measure that you can do really at the bedside without like a lab test. You don't need any special, super difficult calculations. And so I like this study because it adds to our armamentarium of looking at patients who are really sick and who might need vasopressors. It uses information that's already right there. So I will probably be using this more often. It's going to replace, for me, the traditional shock index for septic patients. And just going to put that in my toolbox of early assessment of patients. This is a pretty simple study when you boil it down to what they were trying to look at and the results. And I think that's useful. Awesome. Mike, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I do like this study. And I think in terms of the movement towards early vasopressors or concomitant with fluid administration early in sepsis resuscitation, we'd highlighted and focused on the sensor trial last year as one of our 2019 articles. And I haven't been doing it exclusively and always in every sepsis resuscitation, but in light of that particular trial, moving a little bit more towards earlier initiation of pressors, we'd focused a lot in our teachings on shock index, systolic shock index. I think this adds a nice pearl. Rob said it as I would and adds to our armamentarium when evaluating that patient at the bedside and helping to determine when we would initiate early vasopressors. I think this is a nice paper and a nice pearl to add while we await the results of the upcoming trial you just mentioned. Oh, wonderful. So yeah, I agree. I think that any study that incorporates the pathophysiology of a specific disease that walks through our door, I think is worth taking a look at. And I think the authors did a really good job at teasing out the difference between things that we commonly see in the ED, like hypovolemia, shock from trauma, bleeding, and something we also see really common, which is sepsis, and not just lumping it all together and trying to use the same hammer to hit the nail. So awesome, awesome work from Drs. Espina Tascone, Tabul Hernandez, and the rest of them. You know, this was a pleasure to read. So with that being said, I think we can wrap it up here. And it's been fun kind of discussing a non-COVID article for once over the past few months. I think my brain is somewhat numb to COVID at this point, but definitely covered a lot of material over a short period of time. But as always, fellas, it's uh, great talking to you. Thanks so much for going through it with me. Great study. Yeah, Yeah. thanks for bringing that to our attention and getting it out there to our listeners, John. Well done, and we are appreciative. And to all of you out there, please continue to stay safe and look after and care for one another. This is 
Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. And on behalf of Peter, Rob, and John here at CCPEM, we wish you well. We will talk to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.